Welcome to the New Thinking for a New World podcast, where we explore the most pressing issues that are challenging and changing our societies. We are looking for new thinking and new solutions wherever we can find them. Listen as host Alan Stoga, the Talberg Foundation's chairman, challenges his guests for analysis, ideas and actions. Together, we can help make our world at least a bit better. We live in a world of converging crises, war in Europe, food and energy insecurity, historic flooding in Pakistan and historic drought in the U.S., COVID shutdowns in China, American and European sanctions that disrupt supply chains. The list goes on. The good old days probably were not as good as we now like to remember them, but they were certainly more predictable. That may be another way to say that we should forget about the new normal thing you're hoping might emerge after the pandemic. No normal is the new normal. Now, imagine that you're a CEO of a big company. How do you cope with a world that seems to be spinning off its axis? How do you find workers when and where you need them, invest in new technologies that actually work, choose markets, raise capital, and so on? And perhaps most importantly, what do you do now about climate change? My guests today are in the business of thinking about converging crises and trying to help corporate executives cope. Tom Armstrong is president of Madison River Group, which specializes in advising on climate change and earth system outcomes. Diane Osgood is a longtime Telberg friend, and more importantly for today, is a sustainability strategist with deep practical experience in the real world which I've got to add, is not something that many sustainability strategists actually have. Welcome, Tom. Welcome, Diane. Thanks, Alan. Thank you. Pleased to be here. Let's start with what you mean by converging crises. Is climate the main driver in your minds, or is it one of several tectonic shifts that combine to create a deeply unstable and highly complex environment? Tom? Thanks, Alan, and thank you for having me here today. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, Our use of the word converging crises really stems from the notion that there are many different disruptors or many different tectonic shifts, as you so well put the the analogy. Um, And I appreciate that being a structural geologist, so thank you. Um, Be it geopolitical instability, overpopulation or population development dynamics, uh, human health, or climate change, each and every one of these disruptors or forces is a crisis that has, in in some cases, the equal amount of disruption to climate change or to uh, another crisis, uh, or it might be unequal or unequal. Um, But regardless of that, they're each treated as separate crises that converge at what seem to be the most remarkable of times and unpleasantries. The, um, we, we look at the converging crises as being something that is not arithmetic. When you have different uh, impacts or effects like uh, geopolitical instability and climate, one, uh, one plus one equals five in the world that we live in today. The new normal, as you said, the no normal is not arithmetic, it's exponential or power law. And it's striving for uh, changing rates of processes, not just the actual process moving itself. 
And because of that, it's hard to keep up with. And with clients who think on a quarterly basis, we're finding now that the changes that are occurring with the different converging crises are quicker than a, the pace of thinking at a quarterly basis in a boardroom. And because of that, we're seeing uh, what I would call rather frenetic behavior at times from some of our clients where the rate of change and the rate of interaction of these crises is so great that they just can't keep up with it. They're not used to thinking at that, that pace and at that scale. I used the tectonic uh, image deliberately, not just because of your background, Tom, uh, but also because, as you know, if you've ever been in an earthquake, it is profoundly disquieting because the one thing you assume in life, the earth never moves, is suddenly moving. So everything you assume in life is now up for grabs. So, Diane, that is sort of the world we seem to be living in, uh, which is a problem because. If you're reliant on either a certain understanding of how things work, or more precisely, a model of how things work, it's only as good as the data. It's only as good as the past. And if the past is no longer prologue to the future, or at least to the futures we seem now to be addressing, how do you think about the future? How do you advise people to sort through all of this? And it's not, I was going to use the word noise. It's not noise because it's, it's quite real. There's quite a few elements there. Uh, the first thing is bringing people up to date with what is actually happening on our planet in terms of the environment and ensuring that they have access to what's really happening as opposed to watered down versions or old data. For example, a hundred year flood mark right now, is pretty much irrelevant, just not going to help you very much. And yet so many of our decisions are made both personally and, and at the corporate, at the company level are made on those types of old indicators. So the first step is good, current, relevant data that's not uh, watered down, that's not um, aggregated to a level that's not helpful, um, that's very specific to where your company operations are and where you think your com company operations are going to grow. The second thing is an understanding of that science and an understand and an appreciation and the ability to trust the science. And, you know, we've really seen an erosion of trust. Um, the Edelman Trust uh, Barometer is a fantastic tool to, to, to watch year on year how trust is eroded in certain sectors. And we all know with the, with the pandemic, what's happened to trust in science. And so it seems contradictory, but I think it's incredibly important that company leaders find the scientists that they can trust that have up-to-date data. And then the third step of it, and I think this is in, in a lot of ways the most difficult, is ensuring that the executives and the, their leaders within the company know how to handle the science and, and know how to make good decisions using it so that they understand the science. And that notion, that takes training. This is... Uh, as, as you just said, this is a, a fairly new phenomenon where this type of information has to be quickly processed in order to make good decisions. And that's going to take some training. One of the problems that emerged over the last couple of years with regard to science is the notion that scientists somehow have truth. And in fact, I know very few people other than clergy and scientists who use throw around the word truth in the way that they do. 
And truth used to mean something. I remember talking to a, a public health scientist early in COVID, and she said, we don't know anything about this disease. It's new. It's going to take us months to actually accumulate data, understand the data, watch the data uh, evolve. Yet you and the public are demanding answers today, and people are insisting that we already have truth. And I'm wondering if that isn't part of the problem, that we don't really understand what scientists actually do. So we assume that they have answers to anything that is of natural order. You know, in my mind, there's a real shortfall of knowledge in the public sector when it comes to what does a scientist really provide. And when we talk about the science, scientific methodology, it really is in achieving what we call the null hypothesis. It's think of a, uh, of a house or a maze with lots of doors that are all wide open. What a scientist does is not predict which door is certain to be the one we should go through. Rather, a scientist just systematically will go through the scientific methodology and close all the doors that we know cannot be the path to the truth. And at the end of the day, we're left with hopefully one door, but it never is really one door. So we always try to qualify or quantify our conclusions around the idea of we believe the best answer is this, but we have this is within a certain probability of it being absolute. So at the end of the day, again, we, we try to close doors and leave as few open as possible, but we never really get to a place where we say, this is a fact. This, this is a science has generated a fact that is a truth that will never change. The answer may change as other doors become available or unlocked and opened or closed. But our goal is to reduce the uncertainty as much as possible while providing an answer that's useful to people. But we're always, we have to do it this way in order to be truthful to the public or to the client or to who, the politicians, whomever the audience is, because our whole reputation in our lives as scientists is predicated on our integrity. And that integrity has to follow the scientific method in order to be realized. Well, let's apply that in practical terms precisely to climate. Uh, clearly, much of the global debate about climate starts with the science and then moves to, well, what should nation states do about it? That has been the basic dynamic of uh, the United Nations approach. And I know it's politically incorrect to say this, but I'm profoundly skeptical that they, the negotiators will ever catch up with the science even though that science has been pretty well settled for a long time. Uh, but your focus and your your day-to-day -day jobs is different. You're dealing with corporations that can't wait for the UN to figure out how to how everyone should proceed. You've got CEO X and CEO Y who have to make real decisions, what to invest in, which technologies. Um, they actually shape what's what's going to happen in ways that maybe those government ministers don't. Is is that is that a fair statement, Diane? Yeah, I, I think that is a fair statement. And there's two parts of it. Um, 
To date, most of the focus has been around mitigation. What is a company's role, some would argue obligation, in mitigating their impact on the climate? And that's where we get all this, um, all the noise around net zero commitments um, and or climate neutral commitments, getting to net zero or climate neutrality by 2030, 2040, 2050, et cetera. It's about what the company can do to reduce its amount of carbon and other greenhouse gases being emitted into the world while still conducting its business. We've entered another era, and this is really the area of, of, of focus for, for Tom and I um, with, with our clients, which is, yes, keep doing that and put a lot of attention now on adaptation. Because climate change and the other environmental crises and the converging crises we've, we've discussed are going to continue to hit your operations, your supply chains, and your employees at an increased speed. So as we said, the new normal is, no, is, is not normal. Um, if anything, the only thing that we can be sure of is there will be more volatility. And if we look at just this, the simple, the quote unquote simple factors of these emerging, these converging crises, we need to add these ingredients to our strategy, our decision making for strategies for, again, operations, supply chain and employees. I want to go back to mitigation in a bit, but let's talk about that. Let's talk about adaptation, because that's. In fact, the real world that CEOs and boards and, and, and employees cope with every day, how do you help them do that? What tools can you give them, help them develop so that they cope better and produce better outcomes? Tom? Well, first, I, I think the most important thing is whatever tools we're developing with them or for them, and I think most of the time it's for them, um, except in some beautiful exceptions where there's the expertise that can help to do the following, which is to translate very complex uh, technical information into a, from information, science information into knowledge. And that knowledge has got to be, has got to be developed at the level of comprehension that the, the decision maker, the ultimate decision maker is comfortable with. Uh, at least in my experience. And this is what we've called uh, climate services, where we take complex science information, distill it, translate it, and make it useful and usable for any form of decision maker, not just um, not just uh, uh, a politician, but in my in my uh, in my experience with especially in the private sector, if we're looking at, say, a water resource manager who's dealing with the issue of drought, we've got to make it we've got to make it crystal clear to that water resource manager what the 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 data is telling him. What we've got to be able to lift out and simplify some of the complex multivariate information and make it distill it, translate it into a form that they can truly understand the so what. What is the the message and the conclusion we're trying to get across. And it, you know, it, I'm making it sound like it's a one-way process, but it's really a two-way process or a multi-path process. And it takes a lot of iteration of first, under clearly the scientist must understand what is the actual issue 
that the water resource manager is trying to address and solve, and then work with them in making sure that we're giving them the right information in an iterative fashion. So that, and you know, you can take that as an example much further into more detail, but ultimately at the end of the day, we've got to help support their actual decision-making processes, whatever that may be in terms of how much water they hold back from uh, in a given period of projected drought by the climate that is being uh, generated or displayed or uh, predicted by the climate models, or in terms of what the actual water compact issues are or regulations and put those regulations into the science, the context of the science so that the water resource manager really understands how the, the policies that exist will impact or constrain what they can actually do with the science information that's being distilled by the decision support specialist or the science community or the, the, the consultant themselves. Let, let me try to, which is probably going to be an unfair question, to try to make that practical. The Southwest of the United States is suffering from what, depending who you read, could be the 800-year drought. Never been this bad, and there's no reason to believe it's going to get better anytime. So the water resource manager has no water to manage or is unlikely to have much in the way of water to manage. So how, if you go in to talk to someone who's in agribusiness in the Southwest, um, what can you possibly tell them that can help them under, make decisions about their future footprint, their future operations? Is that totally unfair? Completely unfair. No, it's good. Well, I, I think first we can start with what is the background and the baseline, that foundational information that they need about what the future is going to look like. And typically, using your example or, or the example we came up with of the water resource manager, we're typically operating models that are looking forward one to three years in time. That That's the first foundational thing we'll do, like with the Colorado Compact, uh, water compact for the Colorado River. We we tend to deal in small chunks moving out from present to into the future uh, in one year or five year, three to five year uh, phases or cycles. But really, it's the first and foremost responsibility of the scientist is to provide the water user with the baseline foundational information that paints the picture of what the short term and the pro progressively longer term future is going to look like in terms of water availability for both human and ecosystem needs. How is it going to impact uh, endangered species? How is it going to in impact public health? I mean, there is a list of different questions that are part of and beyond just the water compact itself that need to be, that will come up and need to be addressed. And the specifics of those questions are usually predicated or based upon experience, many decades of experience of working on these water compact issues. The science advances, but the issues, to be quite honest with you, remain the same. So it's experience that helps us to understand in starting, what are the fundamental foundational questions we're gonna to need to address? And I must jump in here. And on the company side, often one of the first things they need to do is to map, to map their supply chain, to know where they're and critical components are coming from so that we can help them understand what risks they may 
be facing in supply chain that they're currently unaware of. And the second is to map where their employees are. It's it's often quite shocking to me to realize that uh, many large multinational companies don't have a good map of where their employees are, much less where they they plan to expand um, the number of employees in the next one to three years. And if you're looking at parts of the world where we know, again, based on the science, that certain geographies are going to come under more stress, be it from from drought, um, from risk of wildfires, from heat domes, and then therefore the knock-on impacts for steady energy supplies, that would impact the decision, the the, the HR strategy of many companies about where they, they expect to expand their employee base. Why would you... Ex- why would you expand your employee base in a geography where you can expect brownouts or heat domes, which can be which are dangerous and can often be fatal? You know, so these are the types of additional criteria that we provide companies to add to their decision making. And as I said, often, almost always, actually, the first step is for for a company to to map where these resources are, but be it their 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 employees. And their supply chains. Quick question on supply chains. Do you think most big companies really understand their supply chains? No, in a word, no. Very few companies are able to fully map their supply chain to the first, what we call the first tier, which is who do they directly buy from? And much less to the second tier, which is who do their suppliers buy from? And then further down. And most of the raw commodities are further down the supply chain. They're down in supply chain, you know, three, tier three or four. So if you think of, you know, apparel or footwear, anything that's got cotton in it, you know, that's pretty far down most companies' supply chain. And yet we're facing huge price increases next year in cotton because of the drought in Texas and the horrible flooding in Pakistan. What can companies do about that? Is that a solvable problem? Yep. They can either figure out where they're going to get their cotton from, use less cotton, or find an alternative uh, material. But mapping where their cotton's coming from is the first step. Because if they're getting it from another source, the price may go up. It may not be going up 40%. And my question is the more general one. Companies don't have clear view of their supply chain because they don't want it, because they haven't bothered, because it's hard to do, all of the above. It's all of the above, and it's not the necessary, right? Companies aren't going to spend time or financial resources on an exercise that isn't mission critical. And now it's mission critical in a way that it hasn't been in the past. If you feel that the world lacks global leaders, please help support the Talberg Foundation programs. Individual donations are being accepted at talbergfoundation.org slash donate. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org slash donate. It wasn't that long ago that certainly in every business school in the United States, people were being taught that supply chains needed to be as efficient as possible. It was all about low-cost, reliable suppliers, uh, allowing companies to operate just in time. And and, and the image, you had this image of things flowing incredibly smoothly 99% of the time. 
Then along comes climate change, pandemic, uh, sanctions at the drop of a hat, economic nationalism, you name it. And now we want supply chains to be transparent, as you've just said. But most of all, we want them to be resilient. I guess two questions. What are the implications of that? And is it possible to really make our supply chains resilient as long as they extend globally? Well, the word resilience is definitely top of the chart. If you were to do a word map, it would be (laughs) the number one word right now connected to supply chains. Everyone's scrambling to figure it out. Resilient global supply chains, it's not oxymoron. Um, They're Many supply chains, I argue, will remain global for a very because they're so uh, because of how they've developed over time and the complex nature of trade manufacturing distribution. But what we're going to see is a little bit more redundancy um, in the in in the systems, probably higher cost, multiple sources for um, the same product. To add to the resilience, which, you know, we, with, with the pandemic and climate change, we really had a double whammy in the last couple of years. And we all know, know the, the price of having just in time distribution, because when something breaks, it's just not in time. You mentioned in passing sanctions and trade barriers. And this is something that's, this is also, you know, a, a con, part of the converging. Um, pressures, not only on, on, on operations, but definitely on supply chains. And um, this is also something that many companies are caught unaware of. And um, it, it's happened with the Uyghur Act in the United States and in other countries where suddenly companies have to demonstrate that what they're bringing into the, into the United States or into Australia from certain parts of China were not manufactured using forced labor. And these types of um, trade barriers, I think we can expect more of. And a good foresight analysis will help you figure out where some of those are are likely to pop up. And Tom, you've worked in the U.S. government for a long time and have have a background in, in that space. I wanted to share a quote I saw literally uh, just today from the U.S. trade representative, Catherine Tai. Quote, We have not sworn off market opening, liberalization, and efficiency, but it cannot come at the cost of further weakening our supply chains, exacerbating high-risk reliances, decimating our manufacturing communities, and destroying our planet. The need for correction is clear, and industrial policy is part of that rebalancing effort. I've got to confess, I find those words terrifying, but it sounds and is consistent with the notion that we Americans need to catch up with the Europeans and shift a lot of the decision making out of the private sector and into public sector hands, air quotes, industrial policy, unquote. Um, and it's whether it's it's and we, we've seen it in recent legislation, massive amounts of subsidies and support in the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, in the earlier Infrastructure Act. Uh, as somebody who has survived the public sector, Tom, um, and who now is is working very closely and carefully with the private sector, um, how do, how should we think about that shift of parent philosophy in in the United States? Let me try to unpack that a bit, and I'm sure my colleague Diane will help with this as well. Um, First off, um, I want to add to what you said about the subsidies and just the 
torrential amount of su subsidies that exist in things like the uh, Inflation Recovery Act, keep in mind that they're also in many cases capless uh, subsidies. That is, if they're related to uh, uh, tax tax incentives on purchasing, say, an electric car or something, many of the things that were written into the IRA bill are actually not capped. So they they could go on and on and on way, way beyond the $470 million uh, price tag of the bill itself. Um, and there may be some good things in that, some incentives for, for businesses and for the economy, but at the same time, it's a lot more money than just 470 million. I've heard Billion. predictions. Yeah, 400, excuse me. I'm thinking back to my early days in the government. <laughs> exactly. Billion, thank you. I'm sure that this is gonna make it into the podcast too. <laughs> um, and I'll receive all kinds of guff from my uh, business partners and colleagues, but no, billions. And that a final price tag, a final estimate after all is completed in terms of subsidies, uh, rebates and everything else is somewhere around $1.8 trillion. So it's a significant amount of money. And it, uh, in terms of the departure from the past and you know what, where this is going, back to your question, um, I worry about it because if, to me, there have been a lot, and I'm just going to pour my heart out a little bit here, uh, I've been involved in a lot of initiatives in the federal government Government over the 25 years I was part of it, uh, not just policymaking, but also helping with the generation of bills and congressional and presidential initiatives. And I have to say that the government, much to some people's chagrin, is not a business at all. It doesn't, it's not built to make a profit. It's built to set, put forth a set of checks and balances to those that want to make a profit or to those that want to do something to make sure that we're following regulations and, and laws. Um, and because of that, I worry that we're trying to place into the hands of the public sector, and in particular, the federal government, the responsibilities and the, the um, well, I'll just stop there, the responsibilities of the private sector which is built for making profit and which is built for being nimble, flexible, and adaptive. And if there was ever a need to be nimble, flexible, and adaptive, now is the time, uh, especially with climate change compounding other issues. And let me just draw this to a conclusion by saying, uh, Alan, a while ago, you, you, whether you meant to do this on purpose or not, you actually quoted one of my favorite sayings, which is, the past with climate change, the past is not a good proxy for the future. And one of the biggest problems I find with people on the business side and supply chain side of these issues, when we try to infuse money into the federal government to be used for things like enhancing supply chains or for promoting uh, the vitality of, uh, of um, systems that are being impacted by climate change or other crises or disruptors. When we, we see these things occurring, um, the people that are running the businesses tend to be shocked at how quick, and I said this before too, at how quickly they have to adapt in order to be resilient. And that, keep in mind that we're not talking about change like the change of the slope of a, of a line from one straight section to another on a graph. 
we are talking about exponential change. It's the second derivative phenomena to mathematicians. We're talking about the explosion and the rate of change, not just the change of, of, of being in time and space. And that, that rate of change explosion or acceleration that we're seeing is giving pause to a lot of people and their confidence in, with both the federal government to comprehend this problem, let alone to actually take the lead in, in initiating the funding for the problem. So, Diane, as you work with the private sector in the context that Tom just described, how do you assure that they come to work every day? Um, one could easily conclude that it's an impossible problem that once once you have a government that's decided it's going to solve all these problems and you're waiting for new regs and new sanctions and, and new demands, uh, you lose the capability of the kind of speed that Tom just correctly said is inherent in any good business leader's approach to problems. Great leaders love that kind of challenge is the first, it kind of, it's almost a, a glib response, but it's true. There are people who wake up and embrace that challenge is like, okay, it's going to be volatile. Let's ride, let's, let's get ready to ride this. Um, others just continue to look in the back and in the rear view mirror. And because it's a competitive world, those looking in the back in the rear view mirror will not perform as well as those who are have have embraced the challenge. And and that's it's a matter of time that competition will sort that self sort itself sort itself out, sort out the companies. Those that are able to embrace the change and those are it's you know it's a winners and losers scenario. Um not quite so bleak because it's the market, but um you know investors will see the trends, consumers will see the trends. Uh, well, first, I just want to say to Diane, I really like the way you answered that question. Um, and I totally agree with you that real leaders come to the forefront when we need them the most. And right now, we need a Winston Churchill or somebody that makes now the time to make change, because frankly, we're sitting on a, a time bomb with climate change. We only have so much time. If you listen to anything, listen to <laughs> Listen to what we hear top down about how much time we've got left in order to deal with this to really make a difference before the impact is so great that the time to see or to uh, realize reequilibration of the atmosphere and the planet itself is so far down the road that we're talking about our children and our children's children and their children's lives being completely different. In, in the way that they lived than the way that we lived or our parents lived. So we're, we are, we are up against a, t a ticking time bomb or a, a wall here with getting the, the climate issue under control. And what I really worry about with that is that we do a lot of talking, um, and there's a lot of pledging, but there isn't a lot of action. I don't see a lot of implementation of the government to do what needs to get done. And, I, I'm not anti-government in any way, shape, or form. It's just we need to see and recognize and agree that there is a problem here. We can disagree on the details, but we've got to agree on action. And 
you know, some people would argue, and probably rightfully so, that the the real time was 20, 25 years ago. But we have what we have today. We just need to get working and moving on these things because sooner rather than later, it will be a very different world. So my last question, and I'll, I'll pose it to you, Diane, is in the world that Tom just described, what is not the obligation of businessmen, because I don't want to go into morality here. I rather want to say, want to ask, what should business leaders be doing, given everything you and Tom have been saying? I think it is an obligation to their shareholders, to their employees, and to other stakeholders uh, to take this seriously. Get informed, get up-to-date information that's specifically about the geographies where you operate, map your supply chain so you know where your, your inputs are coming from, and you have to go beyond tier one. Absolutely have to go beyond tier one. It's just not sufficient. And map where your employees are and work with your human resource teams to know where you, your, your company plans to expand its, its talent pools. You know, if it's Southeast Asia or if it's in, you know, Southern California or other areas that are climatically challenged, you gotta map them. So, and then really prepare your teams pronto on making quick decisions based on understanding the science. It's those three things. Don't sit around. Don't sit around and wait for a, a a Winston Churchill to solve the problems or to rally everybody else. Gotta get in and act for your company, um, and so that you can continue to deliver the products and services that your customers expect. I want to thank you both for this conversation. Clearly, uh, these are challenging times, and it, it's tough being a leader. Um, which is probably why there's so few of them, but we need them now more than ever. So again, thank you, Tom. Thank you, Diane. And we'll see what happens. Thanks, Alan. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Please rate our show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe. Meanwhile, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergfoundation.org to learn more about our work. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org. Thank you, and we'll be back again next week for another episode of Talberg's New Thinking for a New World. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation. <laughs>